You're listening to Firearms Cafe. I'm your host, Tony Brown. Today is Saturday, the 20th of June, 2009. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. On today's show, I want to talk about a program that I watch all the time. It's on BioChannel. It's about an hour long, and it's called I Survived. And the premise of the show, as you can guess probably from the title of it, is they do usually three segments, and they have three different stories of people who have survived a life-threatening event. And these events can be anything from... Uh, someone getting lost in the woods or somebody getting hurt while they're out hiking in the outdoors to somebody who um, is either working at home or has some type of an accident while at their place of employment. It also includes stories uh, of a, what I would call a criminal nature to where somebody's been attacked, so there's been a home invasion, um, somebody's been kidnapped, uh, excuse me, kidnapped and has been uh, from there maybe either assaulted or uh, shot, things like that, and how they survived the situations. The reason that I am doing this show now, and uh, I had been wanting to do this show or talk about it for a while, but one of the main reasons I wanted to do it now is they finally did a show where the quote-unquote victim in the story uh, actually has a firearm or a firearm is involved. And I'll, what I'll do a little bit later in the show is I'll talk, I'm going to pick out about three or four different stories and I'll talk about some of the, uh, relate some of their stories, and we'll go over some of the things that happened in those stories. Um, and so the question might be, well, why are you talking about, you know, this show? What does it offer us, sort of, in the firearms community or in the Second Amendment community? And I think that if you look at how we learn things, we they usually say, what's that old expression? Experience is the best teacher. And while that's true. None of us wants to be, you know, assaulted or shot or kidnapped to learn how we would react in that situation. Um, the other way we learn is through imitation, and that's kind of what watching this show is, because you can put yourself in those situations that these people found themselves in. Uh, and you can say, well, was it because they weren't aware? Was it a situation where there was just nothing they could do? Um, was it a situation where if they had a firearm, would that have helped them or would it have made no difference at all? Uh, so it, it's a thing too, where you can, we, we can look at their, not only their mistakes and, and say, well, okay, I, I would, if I was in that situation, I'd try hopefully not to do that. But we can also look from their, learn from their successes. We can look at those things that they did right and try and keep those in the back of our mind so that if we ever did find ourselves in that type of a situation, you can say, well, hey, I remember a guy was in a similar situation and this is what he did. And I think it also adds, I don't know, if something in the back of our subconscious. If we know that we were in a bad situation and we know, well, well I know that other people have been in, this, have been in a, a similar situation and have been in worse situations and they've come out on top. And if they can do it, I can do it. So I think in a, in a small part, by watching programs like this, it, it can give you kind of a little bit of a psychological advantage of not giving up. To say, if I keep moving forward, if I keep fighting, my chances of survival go way, way up. So what we'll do is we'll go ahead, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll look at some of the stories that have been on the show and we'll see what lessons we can learn from them.
this story, we're going to look at Maria and Carol. Now, this happened in 1999 in uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania. And Maria is sort of the administrator and head nurse of a state mental hospital. And Carol is one of her, um, probably like a supervisor who's under her. Um, now, Maria had ended up firing a man named Dennis Chikowski. And the reason he got fired was he was uh, showing signs of being mentally unstable. He was saying that the FBI and the, and the CIA were watching him and things like that. It also turned out later that he was a, uh, a heroin user. So he gets fired. It's Wednesday morning, a couple months later. Carol and Maria are having a uh, morning meeting. It's 11.15 a.m., Tchaikovsky comes back to the hospital, and it's an open facility, so anybody can kind of come and go as, as, they, as they like. He walks up, walks up to her office where Maria and Carol are having the meeting, comes in, and immediately starts yelling at Maria, saying, are you ready to tell the truth? She says, well, what are you talking about? Right as she says that, he just pulls out what they say was an old Civil War era pistol, and he shoots her four times. He shot her once in the chest, uh, once in the foot, and twice in, I think it was her right arm. And she said that as she was shot, she kind of fell back into her chair. And she happened to look up at the clock, and it was 11.20 a.m. Now, soon after, uh, Chikowsky, I guess, had entered the building, either somebody saw him and called police, or once they heard shots they had called police. So the police come and SWAT surrounds the building. The police are in communication with Tchaikovsky and it's six hours later now and SWAT plans to move in but for some reason they don't and we're never really told why. And remember that Carol is also in there with her. She wasn't able to get out with Maria. So as night falls he handcuffs the two women together and he ties himself to them so that while he sleeps, if they try and move, he'll be awakened. So we flash forward to 33 hours later. So it's 5.20 p.m. the following day. So it's 5.20 p.m. on a Thursday. And Maria had stated that this whole time she's just been in constant pain. She didn't go into shock and you know was, wasn't really feeling anything. She was just in uh, constant pain the whole time. She stated that Carol had tried to talk to Tchaikovsky to get her some medical help to allow her to, to be more comfortable, and he never answered. He would just stare back and look at him. Now, what happens is the police continue to negotiate with him, and it night falls again on Thursday. He handcuffs the women together again. He ties himself to them again so that if they try and leave, that he would be awakened. So now it's Friday morning, and the police wake him up by talking to him through the bullhorn. He unties himself from the women so that he can move around, and he uh, unhandcuffs them. Well, a few minutes later after they're done speaking with him, uh, a window is broken. And probably about three seconds after the window is broken, SWAT bursts through the office door. And she said that from the time that the window was broken, everything happened so fast. It was only a few seconds, but a lot of things happened in those few seconds. So the window is broken. When Tchaikovsky hears the window is broken, he turns and shoots Maria two more times. So now she's been shot six times. She falls to the ground uh, toward the doorway. And the door bursts open. SWAT comes in. They're yelling for her to get out, get out. So she starts to crawl out. As she's crawling out, she hears another gunshot. A couple more seconds go by, and SWAT subdues Tchaikovsky. Well, the shot that she heard was Tchaikovsky shooting Carol in the head. They evac her to a hospital, but unfortunately she dies from her gunshot wound. So the lesson that I learned from this was that even if the police show up quickly, 
It may be many minutes or hours or even days before they're going to act. And this isn't to run down the police or to badmouth them. It's just the way that it is. Now, I'll also give you a quote that I found uh, that really hit home with me that Maria said. And this is a direct quote from her. She said, I was wondering where help was. I was bleeding to death. I just couldn't understand what would be preventing the police from actually breaking in. I was wondering for 45 hours and 30 minutes where people were. So her ordeal started probably Wednesday at about uh, 11.20, and it didn't end for her until Friday around 9 a.m. And you have to remember that the police were there probably... Oh, within 15 minutes or so of her being shot. But yet it still took 45 hours and 30 minutes for the police to actually feel that negotiations had come to a standstill uh, and enter the building. And the reason that they're going into the building isn't necessarily to rescue you or me. It's to gain control of or subdue the threat. Uh, if you and I happen to get rescued, that's a that's just a uh, that's icing on the cake, so to speak. The next story I have is about Wayne and Mary. Now, on this story as well as on the next one, I actually have some audio from the show. On the uh, first one, I wish I had had it, but I had. Uh, made a bunch of notes on the show and had deleted the show before I was able to pull some audio off. But at least on this one, I'll have a little bit of audio. Now, uh, again, this is involving a, an older couple. They're probably in their mid to late 60s. Uh, this happened in June of 2004, and their names are Wayne and Mary. Um, what had happened is they live in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and they live in a uh, kind of a farming community. And where they live, there's only one road in, and it's it crosses the railroad track. So to get into their property, uh, you've only got one way in and one way out. Uh, there's been a train derailment of a freight train, and one of the tanker cars was a car containing chlorine. And when it derailed, it derailed right at the road. So the road is totally blocked. There's no way they can get in or out. When the chlorine tanker car crashes, it spills. And so you have a huge gas plume of chlorine gas. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, chlorine is very uh, caustic. It reacts um, with the any type of uh, moisture. So it will react with your eyes. It will react with your lungs. Um, it will react with your mouth, with your throat. And it's a, a burning stinging uh, sensation. So what I'll do is I'm going to play bits and pieces of audio from them just so you can kind of hear it in their own words and then occasionally I'll sort of stop the uh, the audio and come in and, and make some comments. I was sound asleep in my own bed and uh, all of a sudden I woke up choking. I couldn't catch my breath and uh, it took me just a few seconds to realized that it was uh, that the air was contaminated i recognized the smell as chlorine strongest i had ever smelled in my life it was a very sickening smell the smell just seemed like it took over your breath it it didn't give you a chance to really breathe because every time you'd try to breathe it was just like something going in there and just taking your insides, burning, stinging. So 911, they get on the phone with them and they tell them to get out of the house. So they drive up to uh, where the train wreck is and they find that there's no way for them to cross. Um, 911 then uh, tells them that they need to try and get away from the area because they're not going to send anybody in. And in fact, let me go ahead and I'll play that now. Say your mark. 
Jason, this is April at the Sheriff's Office. You got a lady on the line yes, stuck ma'am. in the middle of the chlorine spill. Right. There's three of them. She's on the phone having a hard time reading. Is there any type of pre-arrival instructions you can give her to try to help her? So we have an officer trying to get to them, but due to the chlorine, no, everybody. Don't. Don't, we don't. Okay. Send, we're not sending anybody in there right now. Ma'am, can, uh, yeah. can you get away from the train? We have people in the area that are trying to help you, but... You just need to try to get away from that train as, as far as you can. And this is another quote kind of from Wayne after they've they've been told that people are coming, but they're not seeing anybody. I don't know what's wrong. Something's bad wrong. I had all kind of confidence uh, in the volunteers, but uh, I don't I don't understand what's wrong. Why don't they do something? So they get on the phone with 911 again, uh, and 911 has told them, you know, stay away from the house, don't go in the house. So they drive around looking for a way out. They kind of come across a long driveway uh, to a neighbor's house, and they think that they may be able to get out and go down to the river. Um, There's a big, huge steel gate. He tries to ram his Suburban through it by backing into it. The gate was so reinforced that they couldn't do anything. Uh, it basically just crushed up the back of his vehicle. And then he goes on to say, well, heck, even if we had gotten through there, there was a big uh, truck that was blocking that road uh, that was full of uh, logs so that they, they there was no way they could get out. Uh, later, they, they get on the phone again with 911. They first tell them to stay out of the home and then about eight minutes later they call back and say no you can you can go back to your house so they head back to their home and when they by the time they get back home both wayne's brother-in-law and his wife mary are so bad off from the chlorine gas that neither that they can barely walk uh, he has to help both of them in he goes inside the house and he notices that in their kitchen they have lots of stainless steel appliances. Well, the chlorine gas is is so pervasive and corrosive that it has started to melt like the range hood, the front of the dishwasher, the front of the um, uh, refrigerator. All that stuff is starting to just kind of ooze off and flake off. Now they're on the phone with 911 again, and Wayne tells them, I'm going to go down the road a couple hundred yards, get my stepmother and stepsister, from their house and bring them back they tell him no you don't have to do that we've already got them and they're okay unfortunately they had not been rescued now in this next clip that i'm going to play he's talking about some of their dogs and um, he gives a description of, of what's going on and the reason i'm playing this is because i think that because their lungs are sort of shutting down their inability to process oxygen and get oxygen to the brain is diminishing. So I, I think some of their abilities to make good rational decisions are starting to break down just because they're, they're starting to get some oxygen deprivation. The one dog that would not leave Mary's side is lying in the, in the bedroom dying. Uh, she's coughing up stuff just like I've been coughing up. It just looked like bloody hamburger or something. I told the other dogs to go outside. I'm going to open the gate. I told them, you know, you guys run to the southeast as far as you can. Well, Mary was coughing so bad she couldn't talk, but she grabbed my sleeve and kept pulling it. And, well, finally, when she could talk, she says, a dog doesn't know southeast from up. So here's another heartbreaking part. They get a call from some volunteers who say that we're going to come in on four ATVs. We've got four hours of oxygen with us, and we're going to we're going to come in and get you. We'll be there in about oh twenty to twenty five minutes. Unfortunately, an hour later, this is the phone call that Wayne gets. And finally, the phone rang, and it was one of these guys, and he told me he says the deputies turned us back. They threatened to arrest us or fire on us. And they won't look at our credentials. They won't let us talk to who's in charge. They don't even know who's in charge. Are we going to get any help here or not? Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Did you, did you close your windows and shut off the air? 
Yes, we've done all that. Okay. We've been waiting over four hours. Yes, sir. Are you coming or not? Yes, just that the train is in the way, and that that's the reason why it's taking long. So, in desperation, he looks through the yellow pages and finds that there is a private rescue company. In fact, I looked in the yellow pages, and I found the. I found there are such things as professional rescuers. I did talk to two of the potential rescuers, and one of them told me, he said, it'll take us two hours to get there. Are you sure you have two hours? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not sure that I have two hours. Can't you do it faster? He said, no, we have to go in by helicopter. And I said, well, the sheriff's department won't let anybody in. He says, we don't care about that. He says, if we come to rescue you, we'll rescue you. But if you're going to be dead, who's going to pay us? I said, well, let me call you back. <laughs> they have a son named Charles who's a volunteer fireman from another county. And he wants to go in. And this is what happens. This is Charles Hill. Yes, sir. Mom and dad, are they okay? or? We are having a hard time getting to them. Well, can't they just land a helicopter in the backyard? No, sir. Due to the chemicals that are involved. Well, can't they just put a gas mask on and go in there like a fire? Our okay. officers, our fire department, and our EMS personnel are aware of your parents. And as soon as we can extricate them from the situation, we'll get them out. Well, if, if I go over there, can I just get a gas mask and I'll go for myself? No, sir. You will be thrown off the scene, and if you fight with the officers, you will most likely be arrested. He told the deputy, I'm going in anyway, and the deputy says, if you do, we'll arrest you. Arrest all you want to, I'm going in. He said, we'll shoot you. He just gave up. So after all of this, they get another call from 911, and it's a person from the sheriff's office, and they're telling him, you guys need to get into the shower so that you can decontaminate yourselves because rescuers are going to be there just any second now. Well, he says that he knew something was, was wrong about doing that, um, but he went ahead, he was so desperate to act to do something because everything he had tried had, he had, had been thwarted on. He gets he and his wife in the shower and gets them all hosed down. Well, unfortunately, once you combine moisture and chlorine, it turns into hydrochloric acid. So he said they it started burning. Uh, some parts of his skin came actually came off. Uh, his wife stopped breathing at that point. He had to give her uh, CPR, and he said that went on for about 45 minutes. Finally, the uh, fire department has been able to come in. They get him. He walks into the room and sees that you know it, it's uh, it's hydrochloric in there. He gets them out. They take him outside. Once they get him outside, they hose him off and they uh, get him to the hospital. They're able to get him out. So after going through all this ordeal, they're finally rescued. And remember earlier in there, the 911 people had told him that his uh, stepmother and his stepsister had been rescued. And of course, he thinks this whole time that they have been. And uh, like I had said before, they had not been rescued but, of course, he didn't know this. And so this is one of the last parts of his story. One of the firemen asked me, does anybody live in this house down the road here? And I said, uh, they've already been rescued. He said, nobody's been rescued from that house. At that point, I knew they had to be dead. My wife and myself and that one dog are the only living things that survived in that area. I'm sorry, I get upset, but uh, thanks to God that I had my husband with me. And if it wasn't for him, now I don't think any of us would be here. <laughs> I survived because I was too angry to die. So here we see somebody who everything they did, every single effort that they made, Everything that they tried just didn't work. They were met again and again and again with failure. But the main thing is, is that they didn't give up. It kept going forward.
The last story today is about Anna and Robert. And this happened in September of 2007, and it takes place in Pocatello, Idaho. Robert and Anna have three children, a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a four-month-old baby. The baby sleeps in the same room with Robert and Anna. We were exhausted. We came off a really busy weekend, a fun weekend, um, at a wedding. We didn't do what we normally do. Just closed the doors, turned off the lights, went to bed. Good night, kids. We didn't do our normal, is the front door locked? Did you lock the back door? We didn't do that that night. Anna wakes up, and she, late in the evening, she sees a man kind of creeping down by the base of her bed. She lets out a gasp. He rises up. He has taken Robert's shotgun from the closet. Um, now, unbeknownst to them, he had been in their home for about an hour. At that point, I nudged Robert. He was laying in bed next to me. I woke up with a... Um, a body in the room, um, and all I could see was a silhouette. I was scared for my I was beyond scared. He didn't say anything. He just had the gun in our faces, and during this whole time, I'm just playing out this scenario. What's going to happen? What if he rapes me? What if he already touched my children? What if he, my kids are already dead? I was just in pure panic. I was scared. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't thinking about my wife at that point. I wasn't thinking about my children. I was trying to comprehend there's a man standing in my room with a shotgun holding it at me. At this point, the man starts to pace back and forth a little bit, and he asks if anybody else is in the home. They tell him, no, just our kids. He then asks, how much money is in your bank account? They tell him it's around $3,500. And at this point, he becomes agitated and angry. Uh, he must have thought that there was more money in their bank account, or he thinks that they're lying to him. He starts yelling. This, in turn, wakes up the baby who starts to cry, and the crying of the baby starts to upset this guy even more. He uh, points the shotgun at Robert and says, what does he need? Make him stop referring to the baby. And Robert asks him if he can grab his son, and the guy lets him do that. He gets up, gives his son to his wife, Anna, and then he gets back into bed. He then proceeds to tell us the game plan. Those were his words. This is the game plan. We're going to wait till morning, and then we're going to your bank to withdraw your money. Now, this next clip is a little bit longer, but it gives, I think it's better to hear it from their words instead of me uh, maybe kind of summarizing some of the stuff that happens next. At that point, I'm thinking, wait till morning. It's like 3 a.m. I'm not going to wait here till the morning with this psychopath in my bedroom. I had always told her, I said, I, I'd always said, listen, whatever happens, if we ever come to a point where we're in a situation where our lives are in jeopardy, I told her, I'm going to risk my life. I want you to run. I want you to go for help. I want you to get to a safe place. Don't look back. Once the baby was in her hands, she tapped me on the leg, and I felt this rush like, she's on board. She knows what, she knows what I'm going to do right now. I got my leg down where one leg's laying in the bed one leg's planted on the carpet so i could get momentum up enough to rush him i'm at the edge of the bed now just waiting to attack him at that point i was holding on to the baby really tight and grabbing the blanket that was over me because i was naked <laughs> under the blanket um so i thought i gotta grab the blanket and the baby and when he gets up I have to run and I knew at this time I was gonna rush him I know she felt me slide away from her to where her and I aren't resting I'm at the edge of the bed now just waiting to attack him he went to the window I flew up 
as fast as I could with every bit of momentum I had, and I struck him in the face. I, I punched him, he went down. Um, I, it gave me enough time to grab the gun. I jumped out of the bed, grabbed my son, and I ran out of our bedroom and out, of the, out the front door. I screamed like I've never screamed before. I was screaming, somebody help me. I knew when I started going at it with him that he was on something. He wasn't normal because you don't, you don't take a punch in your face and just it doesn't even affect you. I mean, getting, getting caught off guard like that, <laughs> I don't care who you are, that's not normal. Um, so, and his strength of pushing me around was, it was amazing. He, he threw me in the wall, we knocked the dresser over. I mean, he was very strong at that point. I twisted really hard, really quick, and I got control of the gun, and I swung it like a, like a baseball bat. I swung it as hard as I could and hit him across the head. I saw him fall, I dropped the gun, and I ran. Um, because I wanted help, I wanted 911, I wanted the police, I wanted, I couldn't take this guy, I couldn't, there was nothing I could do to take this guy out. I ran out of the house like a basket case. I ran next door and I pounded on the door. Um, they came and answered the door, I said, call 911, I have a, a intruder in my house, call 911. Um, and I, it dawned on me right there, it, it like hit me my kids are still in the house okay so now in the upcoming clip i want you to pay attention to what this guy yells to his neighbor uh, because the thing that he tells his neighbor to do i would never expect them to have let that be reported on a type of a mainstream media show i ran out of my house across my driveway into my neighbor's house, into my neighbor's front yard, okay? Pounded on the door, told him to call 911, and I saw the intruder coming out of the laundry room door through my garage windows. And I could see down the street, I could see a neighbor yelling, what's going on? And it was Dale. I said, Dale, I said, get down here, bring guns. I've got an intruder in my house. You go through the house and we'll corner him in the garage. And that's what we did. My other neighbor came running down, Mike. I said, Mike, go in the house and get my kids. Mike got them out of the house. Dale and I are holding the guy at gunpoint. The guy pulls out a knife and he puts it to his throat and wants to kill himself. Um, and I was telling him, do it. And I remember my exact words. I said, kill yourself. I said, I've got a pressure washer. I'll clean it up. Um, and that's really, we waited till the police came. And then I went looking for Anna. It felt like forever waiting. My neighbor kept the baby. And I ran out of the house trying to find Robert. I wanted to make sure he was okay. And I did see him. at the end of the street. Um, Robert's words to me were, we're okay. We got him, the police got him. And I asked, where are the kids? They, and he said, they're safe. They're at the Hatcher's house. And we just hugged and held each other. That was like the best thing in the world. That was like the, that was better than getting married. That was better than everything. Knowing that just giving her that hug, just we were back together. That was like, like we made it through this thing. What these guys say next mirrors what a lot of us know and it's a philosophy that a lot of us believe in. Unfortunately, it's something that isn't really portrayed much and is oftentimes downplayed or told that it's the wrong philosophy to have. It's the wrong outlook on life to have. People always have the mindset 
that they need someone else to help them. And that's not my mindset. That's not my wife's mindset. It's your life. If you want it, you got to do something. When he said, we're waiting till morning, it's like, no way. I got angry. I was like, no way. We're not waiting till morning. You're not going to come into my house and say that. And I knew, I was confident in thinking that because I knew who was in bed right next to me, my husband. He wasn't going to let that happen. There used to be an ad here for the bumper stickers, but I guess somebody found it offensive, so I've gone ahead and tried to remove the one word that was offensive to somebody. So here you go. So you see? If this is you, we have the answer to your problems. First, second, and third, place three American dollars in a self-addressed stamp number 10 envelope and send to Gun Rights Radio Network, P.O. Box 966, South Bend, Indiana, 46624. Once you receive your two Gun Rights Radio Network bumper stickers, place one on your vehicle, Welcome to the big leagues, Tiger. Gun Rights Radio Network in no way guarantees any claims made in this advertisement. Your actual results may vary. And looking at these three stories, what are some of the things that we learned? Were there any common threads that ran through the stories? Um, what were some of the things that were or should be, I guess I should say, eye-openers? Let's look at that first story, and that's about Maria. In the end of, of that segment, I spoke about the fact that rescue may not come right away, if at all. So let's look at it from a, a different angle as far as what we can learn. Was there anything that Maria could have done differently that would have changed her situation? And in her case, I don't think so. Some would say that she should have armed herself, but she works in a mental hospital, and I'm sure there's probably laws that say that you can't take a firearm in there. Um, we have to remember, she said, even the security guards weren't armed. Uh, also, the working in a, in a mental hospital, you have a lot of contact with the patients, so you wouldn't want to introduce a firearm in that situation. Now, her situation, I feel, was really one of those kind of out-of-the-blue things. There were too many variables for her to control. Uh, if we look at it in regards to the possibility that that man would come back that she had fired it had been about two months since she had fired him and she probably felt that if she hadn't heard from him by then she'd probably never have to deal with him again and if we look a little bit more into her situation we also see that she never gave up um, and that she took control of situations where she could and, and one thing that i didn't mention in the earlier segment was at one point they had brought some food in and it was a bologna sandwich or something like that and she had decided that she wasn't going to eat it because if she was going to die she didn't want that to be her last meal now it's a little thing but it was an indicator that she was willing to fight back in some way and what it did for her mentally is it allowed her to say and again, kind of to herself, to uh, to her attacker, it allowed her to say, you may control most things in this situation, but you don't control everything. I still have some control over things. And that, again, gives you a psychological advantage. It can keep you from giving up. In the second story, that of Wayne and Mary, we see that even though the rescuers were right there, it took seven hours for them to get to Wayne and Mary. And some may say again that, well, seven hours, it's really not that long to have to wait. But you have to remember, every breath that they took was not only painful, but it was damaging. And if we ask the same question of, was there anything that they could have done differently? In hindsight, you could see that 
other than them maybe immediately trying to walk away from the scene, there wasn't a whole lot more that they could have done. Um, they were elderly couple. At the time, they didn't know the extent of the toxic cloud. And the main thing was, was they believed the authorities were giving them good information and instructions. So it's hard to say that they could have done more than what they did, other than maybe having gas masks. I don't have one. I'm thinking seriously about getting one. Uh, and not because I think that there's going to be a great big chlorine spill outside of my home, but I can think of a few situations where it would be real handy to have one. The main thing that really stood out to me about Wayne and Mary's story, and the thing that bothered me the most, was that the authorities threatened to shoot his son and to fire upon the volunteer people who wanted to come in on the ATVs. And some people would say, again, well, you know, they have to control the scene. They don't want to think, they don't want to make things worse. And I understand that. And I would be okay if the police were saying to me, look, if you try and go in there, if you interfere, we're going to arrest you. But it's quite another thing for them to say they're going to shoot me. So they're, I mean, they're going to threaten me with a deadly force when they don't, when they wouldn't need to. Um, and that's something that we hear about all the time. And that issue of, of them threatening to use deadly force to stop you from going into a scene when they could otherwise just take control of you physically. That's something that we all need to really think about and think about what the long-term implications of that type of stuff means. Um, that's a lot of power that the the police or the sheriff's office or whoever has. And the main thing is if you or I had said that to somebody else um, who was going to go into a, a situation where they were going to try and get a loved one, if you if you or I said, you go in there and I'll shoot you, We'd get in trouble for that. We can't threaten people with deadly force. So let's look at the last story, and that's of Robert and Anna. Now, the main reason that their ordeal didn't turn into a 20-hour or a 48-hour situation is that they had a plan. Uh, and it was a plan that both of them knew about. And more importantly... It was a plan that they were willing to execute. They were willing to put it into motion. Even though their story was one of the shorter ones that I had seen, there was quite a lot that we could learn from it. And the first thing is, if you have a routine of checking that the doors and windows are locked, don't deviate from that routine. Make sure that you do it. I don't. If you're too tired or whatever, you're, you've got to make sure that your house is secure. Now, would that have stopped if their house had been locked? Would that have stopped the intruder from getting in if they really want if he really wanted to? Mm, maybe not, but more than likely he would have picked another house. Now, also he had a shotgun in the home, but it didn't get used. I'm sure like they thought it would. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have at least one firearm in your home. And no one thinks that they're going to be looking down the barrel of their own gun. But that's what happened to them. And while they were scared, they didn't give up. And they didn't say, oh boy, now what are we going to do? They, they moved forward. And so when they got... Another thing that I found was interesting was when Robert got the gun back and he was fighting with the guy, he used it as a club. So again, you know, a lot of times with the training, they talk about, you know, you're going to, you're going to be so amped up that you're going to go into that gross motor skills. You're falling into that fight or flight thing. Also, it said that he, he swung the, 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 uh, the shotgun as a club and he hit the guy and the guy went down. And then he said, 
he dropped the gun. And I'd kind of always thought that, you know, a lot of times you'll watch a movie and somebody will be fighting and they'll knock the guy down and then they'll immediately drop the weapon that they've got and they'll run off. Well, that's, in essence, what this guy did. And it got me thinking, well, why didn't he hold the guy at bay? Was it because maybe that the gun wasn't loaded or he didn't know if it was loaded? Or did that option not even occur to him in that high-stress life-and-death situation that he, that he was in? Um, because he, he, once he had an escape, he took it. So I kind of wonder if it was sort of that, kind of what we call that lizard brain took over. And when the opportunity came, that flight instinct took over in him. And he basically did, uh, he lightened the load. He dropped what he had and he ran. So I would love to be able to, to talk to him and find out, you know, why he did that. Why, or if he just, he sort of just found himself outside. Uh, a little later, they alert the neighbors. And this, and they, they run out of the house. They alert the neighbors. They call, they say, call 911. There's a guy in the house. But the most important thing but again, the most important thing that he says is he yells down to his neighbor down the street. He says, get down here. There's a guy in my house. Bring guns. And that is what allowed them to go back in and hold the guy at bay in the garage and allowed him to be able to have somebody else go in and get his kids that were left in the home out. Uh, so it wasn't so much that he had a gun, but it was that his neighbors had a gun and that he knew his neighbors had a gun. A lot of us have neighbors that are, maybe they don't own a gun or, or not necessarily that they're anti-gun, but they just don't own one. But what we can see from this story is that when the chips are down, you're going to be damn glad that your neighbor has a gun if they can come to your assistance. So anyway... Like I said before, this this story I thought was was something that I would probably never see on this type of show, just because most mainstream shows or mainstream media, however you want to call it, won't ever show the positive side of citizens using a gun to help themselves or to save themselves. So in conclusion, the stuff that I learned from this show and the things that I pick up from uh, different episodes of the show each time is that you've got to have a plan. You've got to be prepared because the authorities may not be able to help you in a timely manner. They may be there. They may be on the scene. They may be a hundred yards away from you, but it may take them seven hours or seven days to actually be able to get to you. For better or worse, we are on our own. And when we make our plans, when we make, when we go over certain scenarios in our minds and say, well, if this happens, how are we going to act? You can't really bring into it the fact that if I can just lay low for a few hours, for a few minutes, police will come in and they'll help me. Because remember, we're on our own. And it's not that emergency services don't want to help you. They do. But helping you, you're way down on their list of priorities. Their number one priority is going to be secure the scene. The number two is get information. Three, they're going to want to have a plan to go in and, if it's a, a bad guy's involved, to go in and stop the bad guy. Number four, maybe even five down the list, is getting you out. So I'm not trying to run down emergency services, but again, the reality is, is we're on our own. You have, and you have to plan accordingly. You have to, you have to get that, you have to get your mind, in your mind, that picture that help is not going to come. It's, you've got to get yourself out of that situation. And if you plan and you think like that, when you find yourself in a situation that may be life-threatening, mentally you're going to be prepared for that. So that even if help comes in two minutes, mentally you are prepared and making decisions on getting yourself out of the situation on your own.
If you have a comment or a suggestion or a show idea for Firearms Cafe, please feel free to contact me. You can do that a couple of different ways. The easiest way to get a hold of me is going to be through my email, which is going to be firearmscafe at gmail.com. Or you can go over to the forums and under the Firearms Cafe section, leave a comment or a suggestion there. Recently, I got a couple of new reviews on iTunes, and I'd ask you guys if you can uh, take a moment or two, if you haven't left a review over on iTunes, if you could go ahead and do that for me. I'd really appreciate that. It, the, the reviews really do, I believe, help us. It helps get somebody who's maybe searching for some of our type of shows uh, to find them. So uh, anything that you can do like that, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks very much. This show is part of the Gun Rights Radio Network. Podcasting freedom. One show thingy at a time or something like that. I don't know. Initiating shutdown sequence.